Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Dr. Sabrina Howell of NYU. Professor Howell joins me to discuss her most recent paper titled, Which Lenders Had the Highest Minority Share Among Their PPP Loans? In the wake of the PPP, Professor Howell and her colleagues dug deep into the data of who U.S. lenders were and weren't extending loans to. And as you can probably guess, fintechs made a disproportionate number of their loans to minority-owned businesses compared to medium and large banks. We don't often have professors on the show, but perhaps we should more often because Professor Howell was fantastic today. She has a deep background as well in energy, China, and fintech, so there are certainly a lot of categories we can have her back for. In today's episode, we discuss some of her previous research, including the craziest ICO that she's studied, and then of course jump into her paper. In that paper, we discuss the good and bad of the PPP, her fascinating research methodology, why big banks fell short in minority lending, and her immediate recommendations to help the government in its next round. We also cover the fintech class that she teaches at NYU and how student appetite is developing, and in the rapid-fire round, get her thoughts on if the IPO will ever actually happen. Enjoy the show. Hi, Professor Howell, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're very excited to have you on as a guest today. Thanks so much. I'm a big fan of the show. I think over 90% of your guests are uh, (laughs) CEOs or venture partners, so I'm humbled and honored to be here. Great. So we don't often have professors on this show. I think the last one actually was also an NYU professor, Dr. Jing Wang of NYU Shanghai. So can you maybe walk us through your path to NYU and academia to start us off? Sure. I actually entered a PhD program at Harvard thinking that I didn't want to be an academic. I had studied mostly Chinese language and history in college and then got into energy security and clean tech during and after college. So I wanted to work in energy business and policy, and I figured a PhD was a good and free way to get some skills and credibility. I'd always liked school, but I drank the Kool-Aid while at Harvard, I guess, and became interested in studying entrepreneurship kind of through studying clean tech innovation, where, of course, a lot of the exciting activity was happening at startups. I spent a lot of time hanging around clean tech startup events at MIT, and I just started to find the universe of startups and how they got funded to be fascinating. So after I graduated, I wound up taking my current job at NYU Stern's finance department, which has been fabulous. Great. And so I hear energy in there. I don't necessarily hear a lot of fintech. So where exactly does fintech come into the picture? Right. So Stern and especially my department chair, David Yermak, have done an amazing job leading in fintech programming. And David got me into fintech early on in like 2015 when I first joined. And he convinced me to take to create a class that would blend fintech topics with entrepreneurial finance topics. And so I've been able to combine you know, what I've learned creating that course and teaching that course with other research on a whole range of subjects. One project I did specifically on fintech that's published in the Review of Financial Studies, which is a good finance journal, is about initial coin offerings and understanding how their sort of success and variation is related to what we know in the conventional entrepreneurial finance space. But I've also been able to work on just 
very different things like China. I you know, have a paper on China's IPO suspensions and showing sort of the negative effects of regulatory intervention. So I've been able to work on a lot of different topics. That's great. So you mentioned ICOs. What year exactly was this again that you were researching ICOs? Well, we started the project in 2017 and the <laughs> paper time. was ultimately, yeah, with the, with the bubble. The paper is officially published this year, but has been out for a number of years. And we'll get to your main paper, of course, in a minute, but I am curious. So what was kind of the main takeaway of this paper? I know ICOs have been a very controversial topic, certainly some great actors, but also, unfortunately, some bad actors, especially, as you mentioned, in that ICO craze in 2017 or so. Of course. So one of the things we show in the paper that I think is pretty interesting is that a lot of what we think matters for success and for venture funding in conventional entrepreneurial finance in terms of understanding the relationship between VCs and entrepreneurs turns out also to matter in ICOs, in predicting ICO success. And so one example is the use of vesting and you know skin in the game on the part of the ICO sort of leadership team or founders. So we found that that was you know strongly predictive of success. And we also found that more professional voluntary disclosure, more professional white papers with more content about the tokens properties and the code and future supply and so forth were also associated with success. And that has some interesting implications for thinking about how to regulate disclosure. So for example, in IPOs today, we require a tremendous amount of disclosure that actually often deters firms from going public. But there's a lot to learn from voluntary disclosure. So an alternative option is to reduce disclosure requirements, and then the market can actually learn from what firms choose to disclose. Right. I I think that is giving a lot of credit to the investor then in terms of looking at these voluntary disclosures. Do you think that this has been a net positive for them? Because I mean, at least with the IPO process, direct listing process, there's so many different regulations in place. And with the IPO, you have the lockup period, et cetera. Do you think that it's going to play out as a net positive for investors? To start with conventional IPOs, from a retail investor's perspective, buying in on the first day has never been a particularly good strategy. If you are, for example, a hedge fund who gets an IPO allocation and then is able to flip it on the first day, you know, then do might do very well. So I think it depends on who, what investor you're talking about in each of these different scenarios. In the case of ICOs, there were a tremendous amount of scams and nonsense and a lot of people who you know, lost money investing in you know, a handful of ICOs. In the paper, we don't focus on returns to investors, but in recent just sort of follow-up work that I've been doing with David Yermak, who was my co-author on the first paper, we've just explored a little bit what those returns look like. And what's interesting is that they don't look so different from traditional very early stage venture returns in that you have a few tokens like Filecoin Mm -hmm. that have done super, super well, that are home runs. And then you have a lot that don't make it go to zero. And it turns out if you have a pretty diversified portfolio, and if you were clever enough to avoid the clear scams, like there's a token in our database called EggCoin that was supposed to represent just a dozen eggs and was an explicit (laughs) joke. So this was was oh, a joke. Wow. It was definitely created as a joke, and we have evidence on that. But at the time of our study, it had a, something like a $15 million market cap. So if you had the sense to avoid <laughs> the egg coins and invested in a diversified portfolio, it's not clear that you necessarily did terribly. Right. 
Wow, that's incredible. I thought New York City eggs were expensive. I remember paying $7 for my first dozen eggs when I moved there. $15 million market cap for a dozen. That's that's incredible. Uh, <laughs> yes. So let's just get straight to your paper here titled, Which Lenders Had the Highest Minority Share Among Their PPP Loans? To begin, we do have a lot of international listeners, so maybe they're not familiar, but what is the PPP and what was its purpose? So. To zoom out, the economic crisis induced by the COVID-19 pandemic was devastating for small businesses in the U.S. And minority-owned, and especially Black-owned, small businesses closed actually at a much higher rate than white-owned businesses. For example, in a recent paper, Robert Fairley finds that in the first two months after the crisis, 41% of Black-owned businesses closed compared to just 17% of white-owned businesses. And so that fact was part of what motivated us to start this project. And what we focus on was the key legislation that the U.S. Congress passed to try to respond to these widespread challenges facing small businesses, which was to authorize $650 billion in Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, loans to small businesses. This is one of the largest single fiscal programs in U.S. history. So to give a sense of the magnitude, it's equivalent to about 14% of total U.S. federal government spending in 2019, and about the same size as total annual spending on Medicare. One interesting thing about the program is that the loans were not given out directly by the government, but through private sector financial intermediaries, overwhelmingly banks. They were reimbursed for their efforts by a fee, which is essentially 5% of the loan value for almost all loans. So we wanted to understand in our research to what degree these intermediaries affected the distribution of loans to these particularly hard-hit Black-owned communities and businesses. And I think I should mention here that I'm doing this work jointly with two other professors at Stern, Johannes Strobel and Teresa Kuchler, as well as David Snikoff from the fintech firm Oculus. And what we do is we start with data on the PPP program and on the race of the firm owners to explore whether the PPP program reached businesses owned by these more disadvantaged individuals. And we particularly focus on Black-owned businesses. So I'm happy to tell you more details about our method later, but it involves a terrific collaboration with multiple fintech firms, including Medesk, Lendio, and Ocrelis, which are all providing their very valuable data resources and processing power to our project for free. As one example, Kyle Mack and Kurt Rappel at Medesk have pulled Secretary of State and other firm data for us for free for all 5.16 million PPP borrowers. This is a big lift, and I think it really speaks to the genuine interest in serious research within the fintech startup community. Okay, so let me get to our, you know, just tell you briefly, our initial and preliminary results suggest that fintech lenders appear to have played an important role in extending PPP loans to Black-owned businesses. At the same time, the small and medium-sized banks that made the vast majority of loans, especially in the initial weeks of the PPP, were among all lender types least likely to lend to Black-owned businesses. Got it. So when you look at figure one in the paper, I will link the paper in the show. Figure one is just so striking. It shows you know the outlier number of PPP loans that came from fintechs, as you mentioned, and minority development institutes versus the traditional medium and large banks. I know banks, especially in the last year, have really been under the microscope for historically you know, potentially discriminatory lending. But do you think that was the cause here? You know, why were fintechs able to more effectively lend to minority-owned businesses uh, during this crisis? Yeah, you're absolutely right about the disparity, and that's a big question. You know, in the second part of what you said, I guess 
I want to start by telling you in a little more detail about what we find, which will start to speak to your question. And then I'll describe the limitations of our current right. analysis towards speaking to discrimination and where we're going to go to try to more fully answer this question. So what we do is we start by looking at whether lender type predicts borrower race unconditionally. That is, we just describe the share of PPP loans to, for example, Black-owned businesses by lender type. And as I mentioned, at the bottom end of the distribution are small and medium-sized banks, along with Citibank and J.P. Morgan Chase. They made about 3% of their loans to Black-owned businesses. And by the way, I should note that there are a fair amount of non-employer, like contractors, sole proprietors, self-employed individuals here. And so the share overall of, of sort of businesses eligible for PPP that are Black-owned are larger than if you were only looking at employer firms, people who have, you know, firms that have employees. So I should note also that the small and medium-sized banks made about equal numbers of loans, and they together accounted for about half of loans. So it's a big chunk. And then other banks, like the large banks and the other two that make up the big four, Wells Fargo and Bank of America, along with credit unions and BDCs, were more in the middle of the distribution with about 5% of loans to Black-owned businesses. Now, fintechs are way out at the top of the distribution, with about 18% of their loans to Black-owned businesses. And we then find a similar pattern using census data for the percent of Black people living in a given zip code and looking at loans made to those sort of more historically socioeconomically disadvantaged zip codes. And we also find a roughly similar pattern to what I just described for Hispanic borrowers. So we start out with those raw averages, which are, you know, have some striking disparities. And we think about the possible mechanisms that could explain it. So my main hypothesis going in was that this disparity is reflecting loan size. The loan, the PPP loan, was set to be equal to 250% of monthly payroll. So therefore, it was tightly correlated to firm size. Black-owned businesses are on average you know, much smaller than white-owned businesses. And as I mentioned before, you know, more likely to be sole proprietors or self-employed. And so their, their PPP loans are much smaller. You know, The average it might be less than 15000 which is going to be a lot less profitable than an average loan to a white-owned business, which might be something more like 25000 because remember, the lender is getting 5% in both cases. However, when we control for 100 percentiles of loan amount, so we control very tightly for the loan amount, we still get the same result. So it turns out this is not just about Black-owned businesses being smaller on average and generating smaller fees. So then we said, maybe it's about the locations of branches. We know from a lot of finance research that businesses tend to bank with institutions that have a nearby branch, and we know that relationships matter a lot in lending. So perhaps it's the case that banks, particularly the small and medium-sized ones that made most of the loans, are just not located in the same areas as Black business owners. However, when we estimate within a city, we still find the same disparities. So it's not really about location. And then, you know, finally, we thought, well, maybe the results reflect industry. So maybe Black-owned businesses are more likely to be in certain industries that don't have relationships with banks. But again, we find the same effect when we can include controls for very granular industries. Then we put all our controls together. So we're talking within city, within loan percentile, within their own industry. And we still find that about 11% of fintech loans were to Black-owned businesses versus less than 3% from the small and medium-sized banks. So our results thus far, what I've just told you, what's in our research note, don't necessarily indicate discriminatory lending practices by some lenders. So for example, these patterns could reflect higher demand from Black and Hispanic business owners for fintech loans for whatever reason. Alternatively, you know, traditional lenders may have lent at lower rates to Black and Hispanic businesses because they prioritize customers who just were less likely to be 
Black and Hispanic, perhaps because they didn't have existing relationships with these borrowers. Got it. And then taking one quick step back, because I think it is an interesting nugget on how you put together this research. And you mentioned all these different partnerships with people. How did you come up with the idea of tagging each of these businesses to specific races? What data was available or not available that you had to proxy? Yeah. So I think our method highlights the power of fintech and using sort of new technologies and research. Owner race was not systematically reported in PPP applications to the SBA. So we employ data that was newly released by the SBA on December 1st, which included the names of the businesses. And the data analytics startup Middesk, which I described before, has been able, based mostly on Secretary of State registration forms, to actually give us the business owner name for most businesses and owner race for a subset that register with the SBA. We also have um, from Lendio, which is a fintech startup, about 780,000 PPP applications that they processed as part of their business. And together, we wind up with the owner name for almost 4.4 million of the 5.2 million PPP loans. And then we observe the true race for about 765,000 of these. So the question is, how do we get from the rest of those names to races? Well, we use the name to predict the race based on existing methods that draw the race ethnicity distribution of first and last names. And then we use a random forest algorithm to enhance the accuracy of those predictions by training our model on a subset of PPP borrowers who self-reported race. We impute the race distributions for both the names into the random forest model and train the model on the subset of the sample where we know the race for sure. And then afterward, we can validate the model on the remainder of the businesses before applying it to the full sample. That's so interesting. What a fascinating way to triangulate your data. So based on your findings, it seems fintechs are really getting more access to these small businesses to lend and more importantly, build trust during the most stressful time in these business owners' lives while the medium and large banks are kind of nowhere to be found. So do you see this as a major tailwind for fintech more so than just a flash in the pan? Yeah, I do. I think that there are a lot of small businesses that are having their first touch with fintech through the PPP program. And my in-laws who have a small business south of Atlanta, Georgia, are a great example of that, where they got their PPP loan through a fintech firm. You know, And I think creating trust between these small businesses and a fintech firm for the first time could potentially lead small businesses to sort of overcome the switching costs of working with fintechs and use other products down the road. And I think, you know, it's useful to sort of use the PPP to understand the rise of fintech in small business lending and where this came from. So after the financial crisis, banks pulled back from small business lending. This reflected a number of forces, but two are really important. The first is regulation, which made banks focus capital on more profitable activities. And the second was consolidation and decline of the small local banks that used to do a lot of the soft touch small business lending. And then at the same time, there were these big IT opportunities coming from advances in machine learning and data processing. And the banks tended to have multiple outdated IT systems that can't speak to each other within the bank. So in theory, we financial economists expect banks to have terrific synergies in making loans because they have so much information about potential borrowers from other products they offer. In practice, often those systems can't even speak to each other within the bank. And so I've heard from some people that banks typically find it unprofitable to make small business loans for less than 
$150,000 to $250,000, depending on the bank. That's really where the demand is from small businesses. So banks have these huge fixed costs, and it's just not profitable for them to make small loans. So fintech firms you know, have entered this gap, and uh, they were able to start from scratch without the regulatory burden of depository institutions. So the rise of these fintech banks and more generally shadow banks, which is a term we use to describe institutions not funded with deposits, has created a bunch of opportunities in the market. My colleague, Philip Schnabel at Stern, has done some great work showing that the rise in shadow banks, including fintech lending, uh, really almost fully offset the decrease in bank lending within a certain category of small business owns since the financial crisis. And our data indicate that the fintech lenders had a major advantage in processing large numbers of loan applications economically and were able to provide loans to large numbers of very small businesses. So they can serve, and we show did serve in the PPP, those firms who many accounts in the media have suggested just weren't given the time of day by their banks. Our results, you know, I think point to benefits from including fintech lenders and strategies to mitigate the black-white wealth gap that has really stubbornly persisted over over time. Right. And so, I mean, it kind of goes back to this point that I always see, like, thank God for fintech. And then also thank God that this COVID scare happened in 2020 and not 1975 when we didn't have Zoom, we didn't have fintech, all these different technologies. But moving forward, what should the U.S. government, big and medium-sized banks, fintechs, and also small businesses take away in case we get, you know, faced with another crisis like this again? Are we going to rely on just, you know, the number of fintechs happening to be there at the right place, right time. Yeah, I think you know it's clear that fintech played an important role in achieving the stated goals of the PPP. And it's worth, for listeners who may not be aware, just mentioning what that is. So the CARES Act passed by Congress explicitly specified that the program should prioritize, quote, small businesses owned and controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals, end of quote. But the SBA didn't issue any specific guidance for distributing loans. And so the banks were basically able to determine which businesses to serve first or at all. And very quickly, you know, there were media reports raising concerns that minority-owned businesses were struggling to access PPP loans. And so I think this is should inform future similar policies, including the next rounds of PPP loans that seem almost certain to come over the course of the next year, which is that you know, when you, in dispersing these PPP loans via private financial intermediaries rather than directly from government to small businesses, certainly there were efficiency gains, but also the program inadvertently prioritized the largest qualified businesses that had existing credit relationships, which right. really was exactly not who the legislators wanted to target. And the reason was because they were, the lenders were compensated with this fixed fee. So obviously, 5% of a bigger loan is more money than 5% of a smaller loan, and the cost of making the loan is about the same. And I think that that can easily be changed to incentivize prioritizing the very smallest and neediest businesses in the future. And then more broadly, I would say fintech lenders have been excluded from participating in many SBA and Federal Reserve programs. And the fact that they were able to step up here and show that they could profitably make these large numbers of PPP loans at you know very small dollar amounts, $10,000, $15,000, like $15,000 was the median FinTech PPP loan. And so they were able to make those loans at scale and profitably while the banks were not. And so I think that should inform future regulatory efforts. And I think there needs to be some thought into how to organize regulation to ensure 
that consumers and small businesses aren't taken advantage of, but also that we don't impose the same very onerous regulatory burden on fintechs that we do on depository institutions. So one reason, as I mentioned, for the rise in fintech and small business lending is precisely because they are not subject to the same regulations as banks. But the regulations come from a good place, you know, participating in programs at the SBA, like the SBA 7A loan programs or Federal Reserve lending windows is a privilege and requires public trust in the institution and can be exploited by unscrupulous firms. My view is that it would make sense to create a middle ground type of regulation, ideally housed in just one regulatory institution rather than an alphabet soup of acronyms like the OCC, <laughs> SEC, FDIC, just Federal Reserve, it just goes on and on. And there's just real downsides to having such a complex and onerous regulatory structure. But we do want to restrain risk-taking at our depository institutions. So I think, and I'm not an expert in this area, that it might make sense to consider a more bifurcated regulatory approach that did successfully monitor these shadow banks, including fintechs, but with a lighter touch than for depository institutions. So I guess to summarize, let's say you're given the magic wand and in April, President-elect Joe Biden comes and says, Professor Howell, how should the government set up the incentive structure to better get the JP Morgan Chases and the Wells Fargo's of the world to be making these loans? Clearly that 5% flat fee is not working. What is kind of the better way? So I think there's a lot of different ways to structure the program better. I would have two immediate recommendations. One is to set up the fees to steeply decline in loan value. And second, to ensure that lenders are not allowed to prioritize clients with credit relationships. There's evidence from other papers that actually banks prioritized clients that owed them debt because the firms actually used the PPP loans to pay down existing debt. And banks have a clear incentive to do it because that would reduce defaults. And so Mm -hmm. I think it might make sense for the government to require participants in future PPP programs to not be allowed to prioritize firms on the basis of whether, for example, they have a credit relationship with the bank. So, you know, those are two things. I think a a different fee schedule that would favor the smallest businesses as well as a more neutral sort of queue procedure would make a big difference. Do you think that kind of second part is feasible? Because, you know, if I'm a major bank lender, I'm, like you said, would be lending to people that already owe me money so that they stay afloat and to reduce default rates. Do you think that that's feasible to get past? I know there would probably be a lot of pushback from the banks on that regulation. That I can't say. There might be less participation. So many, what seems to have happened in the last iteration was that essentially banks decided that any loan, PPP loan less than $50,000 just wasn't worth their while. And so once the large loan demand had been saturated, they mostly dropped out. We have some interesting results that show these dynamics where the banks essentially dropped out in you know, May, early May, and it was really the fintechs that continued to serve the ongoing demand of the really small borrowers. So one thing that might happen is the banks would just speak with their feet. And if it's not profitable, they're just not going to participate in the program. But I think, you know, now having talked to a lot of the fintechs in the space, as well as um, I've had the privilege of of working closely and getting a lot of help with Karen Mill from, from Karen Mills, who was the SBA administrator under Obama. And I think there's a sense that 
the fintechs can potentially handle a very large volume if given the opportunity. Their processes are completely automated and they can scale, they're built to scale. And so I think if the government designs the right incentives, then the supply will come. Awesome. So kind of transitioning now, as we discussed earlier, you teach a fintech class now at NYU. Not many universities are making this a priority, but it's great that NYU is, and there is also a fintech class here at Wharton. I have to give a shout out. So what are you teaching in this class, especially in such an evolving space? There's so much going on, so much to cover. And for the record, the class is called Applications in Entrepreneurial Finance, colon, fintech. That's right. I love teaching this class, although it's definitely more work than a conventional class because I do have to update it a lot every year as the sector is just changing so fast. But I teach a range of fintech topics from blockchain to payments to lending. This year, I'm going to do a special lecture on fintech in the PPP. And I basically try to cover fintech areas that are relevant to startups. And then I also teach the core crucial topics in a basic entrepreneurial finance class, like how term sheets work, uh, the VC method evaluation. The goal of the class is really to try to set any student up, regardless of their background, to work at, invest in, or fund startups. And my students come from a big range of backgrounds. Some are really computer science students who've you know, been building their own blockchains and they would want to found a startup. And so here they're coming to get sort of a little bit of the finance side of the field. I have other students who are really finance experts, perhaps have worked at banks or at private equity and are interested in transitioning of more entrepreneurial finance work and, and want to get some exposure to this space. In particular, you mentioned it outside of our episode, NYU Shanghai, and we have a lot of integration between the campuses. And I always have a bunch of students in my class from NYU Shanghai, and they are often just really fascinated with the fintech space and have tremendous exposure at home in Shanghai uh, to really frontier fintech startups. Obviously, China is a global fintech center. And so it's really great for the students to be able to interact around what's going on in different parts of the world. Have you seen kind of the appetite at all change? You know, maybe when you first started the class, people were very interested in lending and then blockchain or personal wealth management. Is there kind of a new prevailing trend that you're seeing an interest among your students? It does change over time. For sure. The first couple of years, much more interest in, in Bitcoin and blockchain. I would teach, you know, really the cryptographic primitives of Bitcoin so people could understand how it worked from the ground up. And, you know, the last couple of years, you know, people are not so interested. <laughs> They're like, oh, this bubble has passed. We want to move on. I think there is a lot of interest in payments. I've seen I've seen that growing. This is an area, you know, it's a multi you know, trillion dollar industry with where lots of much of which is, is sent around the world in CSV files. There's just a lot of room to for improvement. And so I'm seeing a lot of interest there. Great. So I think this is a good place to wrap up. But before we do, Professor Howell, you've entered the final round of the episode. You've said you listened to a couple of our episodes. So hopefully you're familiar with our rapid fire round of questions. We've got about seven, eight questions for you. Max, 10 seconds reply if you're ready. Okay, I'll give it a try. So first thing, especially as a professor, I'm sitting in virtual classes. What has been the funniest kind of teach from home, work from home moment so far? Probably my colleagues asking me why there is a teepee behind me, which at home is, <laughs> uh, is one of my toddler's toys. So I'll jokingly explain that that's where I go to get my real work done. <laughs> Are your uh, kids in class at all in school or is it all fully virtual? Any kind of pre-K? 
No, I am lucky to just have one child who just turned two. And Mm -hmm. so he is not in school. How about topic you're most excited to research next or that you're currently researching? I'm doing a lot of work on private equity in sectors that require implicit contracts or a lot of trust between government and firms and consumers and firms like nursing homes and newspapers, higher education. And I'm finding that topic really fascinating. And then does the Ant IPO ever happen? Yes. I think Ant and Alibaba are getting in line with the Chinese government and will ultimately be allowed to move forward so long as they commit to serving the interests of the state. Got it. And I won't ask you where Jack Ma is, don't worry. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So how about if you were not a professor at New York University right now, what do you think you would be doing if you had not entered academia? Would ideally like to be working in policy in some way, either at the central or local level in the U.S. I think that would be interesting. Or I might be in, um, in venture investing. So I think those are kind of my two passions are trying to help inform policy and really help change the world by funding exciting new ventures. I'm sure there's a lot of investors that listen to the show that would love to have you on their board <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then final question, hopefully COVID ends sometime this year, the vaccine is fully rolled out. What is your first awesome vacation? You and your family get to go anywhere in the world. Definitely Morocco, in part because he likes chickpeas. My toddler has decided that Morocco is his favorite word and it has <laughs> been like this. For six months. And so whenever you ask him where he's going, he says, to Morocco. And (laughs) I say, yes, I want to go to Morocco too. So that's where we're going to go. That's a pretty advanced vocabulary. Didn't you say he's only like two, three, four years old? (laughs) Yeah, he just turned two. um, Yeah, I'm not sure where it came from, but uh, but that's that's where he wants to go. I can't say I knew Morocco at two years old. He's off to a good start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You seem to be doing great yourself. (laughs) Thank you. I think that's a perfect place to end, Professor Howell. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Your research is just really proving the thesis of our content and all we stand for at Wharton FinTech as a whole, in that FinTech just has such an opportunity over this next decade to be a force for good and democratize access to financial services. And we've certainly seen that with your research along with the PPP. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.